Good evening. You know, I don't say it one time, I say it twice, amen? Good evening. It's a blessing and a privilege to be here with you on night number three of our series, Jesus on Prophecy. I was sitting here a moment ago and I was talking with my lovely wife and we were just talking and it has been a blessing to be here with you guys so far. And as we're sitting here, we're realizing, you know, it's night number three, but yesterday was night number one, wasn't it, Sister Ashley? Time is running. Time is running, beloved, but I promise you, if we know how to walk with the footmen, then by the grace of God, when the horses come, we'll be able to run. What do you say? We're going to take our time and we're going to walk with Jesus this evening. In night number one, we covered the topic, what is the gospel? And by the grace of God and from the word of God alone, we were able to conclude that the gospel is not merely doctrine, though doctrine is important. The gospel is, in fact, a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Sweetest name I know, beloved. We, you know, uh, I read somewhere that when, when the name of Jesus is mentioned, did you know that angels are constantly flying swiftly to and fro in this world, helping God's children every single day? But when the name of Jesus is uttered, do you know that angels stop by just to hear what it is we have to say about him? There is, a, there is a name that I love to hear. It is sweeter than every name that I know. Beloved, the name Jesus invites the presence of angels. Do you believe that? And so if we're going to be talking about that man, do you know who's in this room tonight? Angels from glory. I believe that this room has been consecrated and given to the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that in the balconies, there are angels. I believe that in every pew, there are angels right beside you right now that want us to pay attention to what is being said about that name. Do we want to hear about Jesus? I promise you, if you came to hear about anybody else, you're in the wrong place. If there's anything that is ever discussed in Battle Creek Tabernacle, it is the man Christ Jesus. That is the best name. In fact, that is the only name, the Bible says, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Tonight's subject is entitled Jesus. What is his name, beloved? The lamb that did. I see I have a clock working with me this evening. It'll be a blessing by the grace of God. Jesus Christ, the lamb that did. My first question for us this evening is, do we understand God's plan of redemption as we should? By show of hands, how many of us know, well, that would be an open book test. Let me take that away just for a moment. By show of hands, how many of us in this room know what the word redemption actually means? What does it mean to redeem somebody? Amen? I heard, I heard some answers. Praise the Lord. The word redemption, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, uh, which is a trusted dictionary since the year of 1828, it says that to redeem is to buy back or to repurchase. Amen? It means to get or to win back. It means to free from what distresses or harms. Is there anyone in this room who has some things going on in their life that is distressing them? Do you know that Jesus cares about those little things? We tend to think that God is a big picture God alone, but beloved, I want you to understand that Jesus is also in the details. Jesus cares about what distresses you. And do you know that as our eyes are turned upon Christ, those details, those fine prints that everybody else misses, Jesus is able to help us maneuver in those distressing situations. Because redemption implies the freedom from that which distresses or harms. 
It goes further. To redeem from captivity by payment of ransom. It means to extricate or to help to overcome something that is detrimental. Now, that definition right there, I want us to pay close attention. Because when we think about redemption as Christians, it's very easy to see that we have been bought back, that we have been freed from distress. But when it comes to this issue of overcoming that which is detrimental, there's a bit of a roadblock. You see, we believe that Jesus is a savior from sin. Do we believe that? But for many of us, it's hard to see how we can get past the sin that we say he saved us from. Is there power in the blood of Jesus this evening? Somebody says, no, Brother Paul, the power ended back in 31 AD on the cross. Is that true? That blood never loses its power. Do you know that tonight, October 3rd, 2021, there is just enough power in the blood to cleanse you as there was to save Peter when he betrayed Jesus? As there was to save Thomas when he doubted Jesus. Jesus is able to save everyone and anyone that comes to him. So I'm going to ask you again, do you want to hear about this man? Beloved, continuing in the, in the, in the, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, now that we know that redeem does, uh, redemption does not only include buying us back, it is not enough that a price has been paid on the cross. God desires to help us overcome something that has been detrimental in our lives. It's a three-letter word. Does anybody know what it is? Sin. Do you know that every instance of suffering and death that you can think of in this room, at the very heart of it, there was sin. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying that everyone who suffers suffers because they committed sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we are living in a world filled with suffering because sin exists in this world. Do you know that there are good people Good people. I spoke with you last night a little bit about what happened on 9-11, didn't I? There are good people that went to sleep on that day. Not for anything they did, per se, but because we live in a world where because separation from God has occurred because of sin, men's hearts have gotten so cold that they can wake up in the morning, eat their breakfast, Sister Ashley, and decide to drive a plane. Well, you don't drive a plane, you fly it, amen? Correct me into the towers. Beloved, all these things that we're seeing going on in this world are the result of sin. And Jesus is interested in taking away the thing that has distressed us for so long. I mean, think about it. How many of you know what a grenade is? I know we know what a grenade is. Uh, there was a brother in here the other day. I spoke with him. He has some military history. I know what we know uh, what a grenade is. Is a grenade dangerous when the pin is inside of it? What if I pull the pin out? That's an explosion. That's dangerous, brother. Now, suppose I told you that I loved you, and I took that grenade, and I pulled the pin out, and I put it in your hand. Are you in danger? What do you need? A savior, right? Or, or, or at the very least, some, some common sense to drop the thing. Isn't that so? You need to get away from that thing. The grenade is dangerous. Beloved, I want you to understand tonight that sin is a grenade with its pin removed. And the only hope of salvation that we have in Jesus, it's not enough to pay for the grenade. Jesus has to take away that which is dangerous. Now, suppose Jesus said he loves you. John 3, 16, did he say that? Yes. 
He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Is Jesus a lover of your soul if he leaves the sin grenade? You see, I'm giving the answers away. If he leaves the grenade in your hand with the pin removed? Do you know the longer that Jesus is away from you, with that grenade in your hand, it's just a matter of time before you go boom. But I believe we serve a God who does more than purchase the grenade. We serve a God who loves and who cares for our souls. He purchases the grenade, and then he takes that grenade. And what does he do with it? We don't know. Jesus takes the grenade, beloved, and Jesus suffers the explosion in our place. Now, I'm thankful that there's not a sin in this room that you could lay upon Jesus that is heavy enough to keep our Savior in the grave. We serve a living Savior, do we not? He is in the world today. Let me tell you something. Jesus went into the tomb. Do you understand that the only way a man can die, the Bible says the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The only way that a man can die is if sin is upon him. And so the Bible tells you that Christ took upon himself the iniquity of guess who? All of us. Do you know that your sin, my sin, was Christ's ticket into the grave? But the righteousness of Christ is our ticket out of the grave and in heaven where he is right now. Beloved, Jesus is seeking to make an exchange with you and I. We came in here with our baggage. Jesus says, leave it at the pew because he has something better for you and I. I promise you, I was talking with a, a dear sister just a moment ago. She was sharing her testimony with my wife and I. And, and, and I want you to understand that anything Jesus takes away from you, he has something better to put in its place. Anything that Jesus takes from you, he has something better to put in its place. And sometimes we find it difficult to surrender sin because we don't trust that Christ has better to offer. Beloved, I'm speaking from experience, uh, only 29 years worth, and that's all right, but I'm speaking from experience when I tell you that anything Jesus takes, there's better to be placed in that place. We can trust him. What do you say? Redemption means to change for the better or to reform, to repair and to restore. So I'm going to ask the question again, do we know God's plan of redemption as we should? Do we understand not only the price paid at the cross, but the process of removing from us and helping us overcome something that has been detrimental in our lives, that is sin? Do we understand the plan? Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're turning in our Bibles to the New Testament. Right after the book of Acts comes the book of Romans. And then there's 1 Corinthians where we find ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 9. Say amen when you're with me. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, the Bible says, For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. You are God's what? You are God's building. I want you to think for a moment. Do you know that God loves his church? Do you know that, beloved? Do you know that God loves his church? Often when we think about the church and what the church is, it's easy for us to think about pews and carpets and, and, and buildings. The Bible says you are God's building. 
The church will always and will ever be the people of God that receive the truth. And so I'm going to say, as I've been saying in nights past, that I do not care, respectfully, what denomination you may claim. I pray that by the end of tonight and every night, you belong to the truth. Let me tell you something. If we accept the truth as it is in Jesus, Jesus will lead us to a specific body. Did you know that? Jesus would lead us all into a specific place. He said, many sheep have I that are not of this fold. Brother Paul, I know you're Adventists, but I have Baptists who have not yet heard what I need to say. I have Catholics who have not yet heard what I need to say. But by the time we have heard what Jesus has to say, do you know we'll find ourselves with one faith, one body, one Lord, one baptism. And I promise you, beloved, the only way that God will unite his people is not on compromise. It is upon the word of truth alone. Our question every night should not be whether or not Brother Paul believes what he's saying. Never mind that. What does the Bible say? Is it in the word of God? What do you base your faith on? Is it, is it what a man says? Because men disagree. We know that, right? Men have varying opinions. They disagree all the time. But the word of God, beloved, in its harmonious whole, New Testament, Old Testament, Genesis all the way through Revelation presents only one truth. His name is Jesus. And that is what I want us to have at the end of these meetings. That is who I want us to have. I believe that in a very short amount of time, I won't tell you how much time because no man knows the day nor the hour. Amen? But I do believe that in a very short amount of time, we're getting ready to see a change in this world amongst believers and non-believers alike, where non-believers are going to be gathered with one mind. And those who profess to believe the word of God are going to be in one accord upon the truth and the truth alone. Do you want the truth? I pray that we love the truth more than we love our preconceived opinions and ideas. I pray that we value Jesus more than we value being right. Let me tell you something. If you were to show for me from the Bible that what I'm about to share from you is not there, I would surrender to what the Bible says alone. That is my disposition. That's the reason I share these things with you. A man cannot share what he but believes himself. Do you believe that? Somebody says, no, I've heard people say things they didn't believe at all. A man can preach that the sky is green knowing the sky is blue, Sister Ashley. Now, that's a strange man. But by the grace of God, I don't belong to that sword. I will preach to you only what the Word of God says. And we must know from the Word of God for ourselves that that is what it says. What do you say? In the book Gospel Workers, page 315, we were told... The sacrifice of Christ. Well, before I go there, I didn't even finish the text, did I? We were in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at verse 9. The Bible said, we are God's building, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the what? Foundation. And another build it thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation, beloved, can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You may be sitting in the pew and wondering to yourself, why does this man keep mentioning Jesus so much? Beloved, it's because we have a thorough foundation, and I need to make sure that before we build, we understand what we stand upon. Amen? No other foundation can any man lay than that which has been laid, and his name is Jesus. Confirming this, we were told the sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. 
In order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth, how many truths? Every truth in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. I present before you the great and grand monument of mercy and regeneration, salvation and redemption, the Son of God, uplifted on the cross. This is to be the foundation of every discourse given by our ministers. Do we agree with these words? Should Christ be the foundation of every message we ever hear? No, we want to hear some other name. Is that what I heard? No, that's not what I heard. We want Christ to be the foundation. Amen? In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul said, I have determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. How familiar are we with the sacrifice of, of Christ? In the book of John chapter 3 and verse 16, would you say that's the most popular text in all the Bible? Is there anyone in this room who does not know what John 3.16 says? They keep cheating with the open book. For God so loved the world, say it with me, those who know it, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. John 3.16, amen? That is what the Bible says. It continues and it says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Beloved, John 3.16 has all of the necessary elements for us to understand God's plan of redemption. And I believe God did that specifically. He did it on purpose. Because if everyone in this room knows what John 3.16 says, do you know everyone in this room can leave able to share the entire plan of redemption just from that text? There are non-believers driving buses right now. Non-believers flying planes right now. Non-believers at your local grocery stores who know what John 3.16 says but don't understand what it means. And if you and I can have that common ground with them, do you know that it is easy to share what Jesus has said? I'm going to show you. From this text, John 3.16, we see the following. Number one, God's motive is what? Love. Do you know that a person's motive is very important? In order for me to trust you, I have to know that your motive is in my best interest. We talk about God wanting to save us from sin and to redeem us and, and all these wonderful things. Do you know there are people who think that God wants to redeem us just so that he can have some servants to put his, uh, his foot upon their necks? There are people that think about God that way. But the Bible told us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's only motive is love. If you study love, the love chapter, uh, my wife and I have been studying that together. In the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 13, one of the attributes of love, the Bible says that love seeketh not her own. Do you know what that means? It means that love, and we know God is love, love is not selfish. Everything that love does, it has the interest of everybody but itself at heart. And so when we're talking about the plan of redemption, it is imperative that we share with people that God's motive from start to finish is what? Love. 
Amen? The second thing that we see from this text in John 3.16 is that God desires to remove death. Is that true? Yes. He wants us to have everlasting life and not death. He wants to remove death from amongst his children, and he wants to give us the gift of everlasting life. Now, I use these words, the gift of everlasting life, because I want us to understand, even from this night, everlasting life is not something you and I can earn, okay? There is not enough work in the world for you and I to do that would ever merit eternal life on our part. It is a gift of God alone, and the only uh, reason why he bestows it is because he loves us. But in order to accomplish this plan, God must have a plan that works how? From cause to effect. From cause to effect. If I were to step on your shoe right now, let's say my leg weighed 500 pounds. Do you suppose that would hurt? Yes? Now somebody says, no, I have big feet, Brother Paul. That won't hurt me. All right, I'll double it. 1,000 pounds. If I was to step on your foot, do you suppose that would hurt? Yes. Now, now, now think about it. If I wanted to take the pain away, is it enough for me to say I'm sorry? Or do I actually have to take the thing that is causing the pain and remove it? I have to remove it, don't I? So I take the 1,000 pound leg and I take it off of your foot. Is everything all right? Has the pain stopped? No, not yet. You see, something has to now be applied. Somebody has to give some, 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 uh, a ministry of healing, some ointment. Some of us may need some lotion, but that's all right some ointment to help the foot to heal. Isn't that right? God works from cause to effect. It is not enough to say that he wants to give us everlasting life, but he leaves the very thing that has caused death all along. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gap in, theology, in theologian thinking today when we think that Christ dies to save us from sin, but leaves us in the very thing that causes the problem all along. God must have a plan that works from cause to effect to die in our place. Taking our death alone could never fully resolve the issue. As long as that which causes death remains among his people, death will be the sure result. Therefore, the plan for man's redemption must accomplish the three following phases. How many phases? Three. Number one, the responsible party must die. In the book of Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is... Now that word wages, does anybody know what the word wages means, what it implies? Nobody in this room works? The word wages implies that a price is being paid, amen? The Bible says the wages, not of the Father, pay close attention, the wages of sin is death. In other words, layman's terms, the price of sin, beloved, is death. And not just any death, it is actually eternal death. I heard a story one time from a very good friend of mine who was speaking about a coat that he saw in a, in a mall. And the coat was, you know, wonderful material. I don't know if it was uh, Gucci or, or whatever it might have been. It was, it was wonderful material, very expensive. And he looks at the tag and he wanted the coat very badly. But the tag says $2,055. By show of hands, how many of you could give me that right now so I can go get that coat? 
Let me close my eyes, because Lord, don't tempt me. The Lord tempts no man. The point that I'm trying to make, do you think the man bought the coat or did he walk out? He walked out of the store. The man had $5 in his back pocket, Sister Ashley. $2,055 is too expensive. Say that with me. It is too expensive. When we understand the price that sin demands, it is then and only then that we develop the sense to leave it at the counter, beloved. Some of us, we, we, we've been stuck in the same stuff for years and years, and we gather at different meetings and seminars and Bible studies, but we leave with the exact same product. And Jesus is telling us every single night, that is too, listen, you are poor, miserable, blind and naked without me, the only person who has the wherewithal to purchase sin and to come out all right is Jesus Christ. Now, I told you the wages of sin is eternal death. But because Jesus has eternal life, do you know death is not expensive enough? Death is not heavy enough to keep Jesus down. The only reason he came out of that tomb is because there was no sin in his life personally. Jesus was without sin, amen? But what about us? There is a reason why Christ had to die. And the reason is the price that sin demanded was too expensive for you and I to pay. I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful that I have a rich friend in heaven, beloved. Let me tell you, I am thankful that I have a rich friend who lives in heaven, who has my best interests in heart, because if Jesus were to leave me to have to pay that price, do you understand that I would be, I would be completely bankrupt? And not only bankrupt, I would be in the infinite negative. Jesus alone can take care of the sins that you and I have, and I think we can trust him tonight. The responsible party must die, but, but that's only phase one of the plan, beloved. The Bible said in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, the soul that sinneth, guess what? It shall die. Have you ever read that in your Bible? I want you to see something that you may have not seen before. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. Let's turn there. Ezekiel is the book in the Old Testament just before the book of Daniel, which is another very special book we'll be going into very shortly. Ezekiel chapter 18. Say amen when you're with me at verse 20. The Bible says, The soul that sinneth, what? It. Pay close attention. The Bible says, The soul that sinneth, it. Not a ransom. Not a substitute, the responsible party, the person that committed the sin, the liar, the thief, the murderer, the adulterer or adulteress, that individual is the person that must die. That is the price that sin demands. So the question we need to be asking tonight, if the Bible is the truth, and the Bible says the soul that sinneth it, not somebody else, you and me. We must die. How can Jesus die in our stead? Is that a good question? Are you following the thought? If the Bible says, the soul that sinned, it shall die. Did Jesus ever commit sin? No, beloved. We're going to show you that from the Bible. Jesus was innocent from the tomb, uh, rather from the womb to the tomb and beyond. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. The soul that sins, it is the party that must die. But yet Jesus died in your place. How can that be so? Jesus didn't commit sin. So how can he pay my price? 
The only way that Jesus can die for any man, pay close attention to what I'm saying, the only way that Jesus can die for any man is if Jesus dies, guess how? As that man. Turn with me in the Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. I want to show you something. Because some of you may be thinking in, uh, in your head, uh, if I'm supposed to die because of my sin, and the only way Jesus can die for me is if he dies as me, that makes no sense. How then can I be redeemed? In the book of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, let's see what the Bible says about that. The Bible says, speaking of Christ, for such an high priest did what? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. The Bible says, for such an high priest did what? Next two words. Became us. Beloved, please follow the equation. Jesus knows that the only way he could save you and die your death is if he becomes you. The Bible says that that is precisely what Jesus did. This is the reason why, as Christians, we are proud to say, I am crucified, not apart, but with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live. In the flesh, I live by the grace of the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. The fact that you know Jesus died for you, and you now know that Jesus not only died for you, but he died as you, has great implications tonight, beloved. Because if Jesus died as you, who did he resurrect as? Think about it. If you were involved in the sacrifice back there on the cross in 31 AD, were you there personally? I know nobody in this room is that old. You can talk to me. Were you there in 31 AD personally when Jesus did that for you? No. But the Bible says that because Christ became you, you are involved in the sacrifice. So that in fact, Jesus really is Emmanuel, God with us. When he died on the cross, you were there. When he went into the tomb, guess what? You were there. When he resurrected from the tomb, where do you suppose you were by faith? Right there in him. And Jesus is very soon coming again to receive a people that have not only recognized that correlation, but have actually adapted it into their experience. Jesus wants to be with you, beloved, tonight. And he has done everything in his power to make sure that that can be your experience. Phase one of the plan, the responsible party must die. Jesus has accomplished that. Phase two, God must everlastingly remove the cause of death. Now, why do I say God must everlastingly remove the cause? Because he wants to give us the gift of everlasting life. So in order to give us everlasting life, that which caused death must everlastingly be removed from amongst his people. In the book of James chapter 1, let's go there. It's the book right after Hebrews. James chapter 1. Turning in my Bible. In the book of James chapter 1, beginning at verse 14, the Bible says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth what? Sin. 
And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. What is responsible for death in our world? Sin. What is responsible for suffering? Sin. The Bible says sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. My question tonight, if the Bible says when sin is finished, my sister, it brings forth death, what was sin doing before it brought death? It was bringing misery. It was bringing divorce. It was bringing hardship, hardships and, and heartaches. It was causing division in the home. All of these things that we often turn and look upon God as though he has forsaken us are the results of sin. Now, I don't know how you're feeling right now, but I need you to understand something about Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the great physician. Did you know that there's a difference between a physician and a butcher? Now, if you don't know that, I, I would never trust where you get your food. Listen, do you know that there is a difference between a physician and a butcher? A butcher and a physician both have sharp instruments. Is that true? If you're a surgeon, you have the incisions knife. If you're a butcher, well, you have all those knives in the kitchen. A butcher cuts to kill. Every time the butcher takes up his, his knife, you can be sure you're going to lose an arm if that's the physician you're working with. But a physician, beloved, cuts with the intention to heal. Some of us have been sitting here tonight and we're, and we're listening and it's like, I didn't know this brother was going to be talking so much about sin and our need to give it to Jesus and to get away from it. This, this is cutting at me. It doesn't feel good, Brother Paul. I know. I'm going through it right now with you as well. But I need us to understand that whenever Jesus, the great physician, applies the physician's knife, it is not to harm us. It is to heal us. It is to remove the things that would hurt us and to place in that position something better. I think we can trust the great physician knowing that he's not a great butcher. What do you think? Somebody says, no, I can smell the apron from the kitchen. No, no, no. Jesus is the great physician, beloved. Trust what the Bible says. Amen? Now, God must everlastingly remove the cause of death. That is why in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, and verse 21, the Bible says, Ye shall call his name Jesus, because he shall save his people, not in their sin, but guess what? From their sin. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, he is called the Lamb of God that does what? Taketh away the sins of the world. Now, if Jesus takes away sin, which is wonderful, there's still a third phase that must be accomplished. God must then fill that vacuum, replace sin with what perpetuates life. Righteousness. Go in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. I want you to see... That in the same way sin causes misery and death, righteousness and righteousness alone can preserve life. In the book of Proverbs chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verse 28. Proverbs chapter 12, the book right before Psalms. In verse 28, the Bible says, in the way of what? Righteousness is life. And in the pathway thereof, there is how much? No death. So if God wants to remove death, it's not enough to take away sin. He has to put righteousness where sin once was. Does it make sense? He has to do that. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 2, where the Bible says, Treasures of wickedness profit us nothing, but righteousness, what is that word? Righteousness delivers us from death. Can you see that in John 3.16, God has made all, uh, known to us all along, 
in the most familiar text in all of the Bible that his plan from the very beginning has been not only to die the price, but to actually bring us to a state in our experience where we're no longer subject to sin, but by his enabling grace alone, we can live righteously even as Christ our righteousness is righteous. Beloved, this is truly what it means to understand the term righteousness by faith. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do. Jesus said, without me, you can do how much? And the Bible says, with God, how many things are possible? All things. Now, how many things is all things? That's everything. That's all things. So, so, so do you mean to tell me that it is a wrong thought to think that God says, I can do all things if I'm working with you, and to come to the conclusion, God can do all things but deliver me from that? God can do all things but deliver me from my addiction to alcohol. God can do all things but deliver me from the anger that I feel from that evil thing that was done to me when I was young. God can do all things but save my family in this crisis. No, beloved. With God, all things are possible. We're not dealing with impossibilities tonight. Whatever it is, beloved, I, listen, I, don't, I haven't had the, the privilege yet uh, to speak with just everyone and anyone in the room, but I know, based upon the word and the authority of the word of God, that God desires to save everybody in this room. Do you know that if Jesus had it his way, there's not one person in Battle Creek, Michigan, that would lose their soul if Jesus could have it his way? But God is a God that respects our choice. We have to exercise our decisions every single day. All God can do is pay the price and offer the opportunity. It is you and I that determine where we are in the end of this crisis. Do you understand that? It is you and I, by the exercise of our choice, that determine whether or not what he did on that cross helps us or if we're everlastingly lost. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're now seeing the importance of God removing sin, but not only removing sin, he has to put righteousness inside. What does he have to put inside? Righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 30. Speaking of God the Father, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, the Bible says, But of him, that is God, are you in Christ Jesus? Who of God is what? Made unto us. That means whatever the Bible is about to say, God literally took Jesus and made him to be what you're about to read next. If God made Jesus to be a bottle of water, just follow the thought. If God made Jesus to be a bottle of water and you wanted a bottle of water, what would you need? Jesus. If God made Jesus to be a GPS for your car so that you wouldn't be lost, but you needed a GPS, what would you need? Jesus. Are you understanding the point? The Bible says, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness. Is there anyone in this room tonight that needs righteousness? So then what you need is a person. Are you following the thought? We all need righteousness here tonight. 
But the Bible says that in our search for righteousness, we, we shouldn't be looking for just some wonderful things to do. That's not enough. God took Christ and made him to be your righteousness in such a way that in order for you to have righteousness, my brother, my sister, you would have to have the man. They're inseparable. So when the Bible says that God is going to fill the vacuum with righteousness, all it is saying is God desires to put Christ, guess where? Inside you and I. Last night, you and I had to talk about Christ in the context of being the seed of the woman. And I told you that when God plants a seed, you can be sure that he's going to have a harvest. But God can only have a harvest according to the seed he plants. If he plants a tomato, let's see if you caught this. If he plants a tomato, what can he expect? If he plants a cucumber, what can he expect? And if he plants Christ our righteousness, what should he expect? Do we believe that? Beloved, I'm telling you right now that this is, this is the, we're studying some of the best news in the universe. I'm thankful to know that my ability to stroll into heaven is not based on what Brother Paul can do. I can do nothing of myself. But it is based upon the quality of the seed that has been planted within. His name is Jesus. And Jesus can do with Brother Paul what Brother Paul has failed for 29 years to do for himself. This is what it means to talk about justification, righteousness by faith. It is the work of God of laying the work of man in the dust and doing for you and I what it was impossible for us to do for ourselves. Do we believe that? I pray that we do, beloved. Now, on our screen, we have a mathematical equation. We have a plus and an equal sign. Now, don't be afraid. There are not going to be too many big numbers there. Not at all. In the center, we have a representation of you and I. This is man. Amen? Now, the Bible says... That sin plus man equals what? Did we read that from the Bible? Yes. Sin plus man equals death. Now, does God want us to keep these red words over here in our experience? Does he want us to have death? No. He wants us to have everlasting life. Isn't that right? But follow the equation. Does this equation make sense? Sin plus man now equals everlasting life? That doesn't make sense. That's like saying one plus one equals two, remove the two and put a four, and one plus one equals four. Beloved, no matter how much we try to change the equation, we have to follow it in context. One plus one will always equal two in the same way that sin plus us will always equal death. So then in order to make this equation true, God has to do something. He has to remove the sin, doesn't he? He has to remove the thing that causes death. Question. Does anybody in this room know what sin is according to the Bible? I, I heard some students back there. I'm going to ask. Everybody can answer but you. Does anybody know according to the Bible what sin is? Oh, there are students everywhere. I might have to silence the whole room, Sister Ashley. Some of us may think that sin is just merely doing something bad. Some of us may think that sin is, is, is merely telling a white lie, but did you know that the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, turn there with me, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible tells us exactly what sin is. It is impossible for us to give to God what he's trying to take away if we don't know from the word of God what it actually is. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, the Bible says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the what? 
transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of God's law. If a man is a liar, is he a sinner? How do you know that? Because the law tells you, thou shalt not sin. If a man cheats on his wife, is he a sinner? How do you know that? Because the law tells you that you are to uh, uh, not commit adultery. If a man, are, are you getting the point? If I'm a thief, if I'm a murderer, all of these things, they're all con uh, considered sin. That is what the law of God says. So the law of God is literally an indicator to show us what sin is in contrast to what it means to live a righteous life. If a person is in Christ, do you suppose that a liar can become somebody that tells only the truth? If a man is in Christ, do you, supply, do you suppose that somebody who used to cheat on their wife can become faithful by the grace of God? If a man is in Christ, all of the sins that he once had, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things are passed away and all things are become new. It doesn't matter who you are right now. If you choose at this very moment to abide in Christ, Jesus will make sure that you don't leave this room the way you walked in. I'm thankful for that, beloved, because I need his mercy every morning. The Bible says his mercies are renewed every morning. Every morning I wake up and I'm a different person than the day before. It doesn't matter if it was, if it was uh, something that uh, a relative said that got me upset. You know, some of you wake up in the morning and you get that text message and it's just the most annoying thing in the world. You haven't even had breakfast yet, but you're being annoyed. You haven't even gotten on the road to head to work to deal with that coworker. You know which one I'm talking about. But you find yourself in the worst state of mind. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The significance of that, beloved, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart or his mind, so shall he be. Do you know that if you have the mind of Jesus, whatever situation you find yourself in, you will interpret the situation according to the way that Christ would interpret the situation? The same Jesus who had people spitting in his face and pulling his beard is able to have you think of them in only love when they do the same to you. Somebody says, well, Brother Paul, I don't know anything about that because I haven't grown my beard out yet. That's all right. They may pull on your hair, as it were. Amen? The principle is the same. Whatever situation in which you find yourself, with the mind of Christ, you are armed for victory in that situation. Victory at work, victory at school, victory with your parents, victory with your children. Victory is all we have when we abide in the man, Christ Jesus. Is that what we want tonight? Do we want victory in Jesus tonight? Beloved, I'm telling you right now, Satan trembles at the name of Jesus. Because he understands that the weakest of us, this is why Paul, the apostle, he said, I am the chief of sinners. Do you know that that means he was the weakest of us all in his estimation? The very weakest. The apostle Paul understood that if the weakest of us can just get a hold of the hem of his garment, Jesus can make us victorious over all the hosts of hell. There is no power in hell. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul that said, I am persuaded that neither angel nor demon nor powers that be, whatever it may be, nothing shall separate us, Sister Ashley, from the love of Christ. You can leave this room with the very sins you walked in. Do you know that you walked out loved the same way you walked in loved? 
Every soul that rejects Christ at the end of this great controversy that is lost, every single one of them is loved. Whether you're saved or you're lost, God loves you. His desire is that we should all be saved. But because he respects our choice, unfortunately, there are those of us who will uh, use our choice in an unwise way and find ourselves lost. That is true. But whether you're lost or you're saved, it doesn't change the fact that God loves you. It's difficult for us to understand that because as people, we don't think that way. I love you so long as you're in good standing with me. Isn't that right? That's how we think. The moment you do, the very thing I asked you not to do. Some of us love our cars and our houses. Think about it. If you're children, Jesus wants to know that what's going on here is an emergency, beloved. We have to understand. Think about your children, the cars that you love, the homes that you love. If somebody were to take those things and, and let's say your child crashed the car right into your back door. The house is open, the raccoons are in there eating out your garbage. The rain is pouring down, the roof is coming in. Wouldn't you be upset? But does that change the fact that you love your child? No, beloved. In the same way, just because you exercise your choice in, a, in an, uh, an unwise manner up until this point, nothing about that has changed how God feels about you. The Bible says, I am the Lord, I do what? Change not. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. I want you to leave with the encouragement of the Savior that you can come to, beloved. I want you to understand this thing. Sin is the transgression of God's law. And if God desires to take away sin, then God has to first make us, guess what? Law-abiding citizens of his kingdom. God has to make us law-abiding citizens of his kingdom. Think about it. Can a man be all right in these United States of America if he runs the streets murdering people? No, you're going straight to prison, isn't that right? Why is that? Because the law says that is, in, that is uncivil. That is not what you should be doing, amen? There is a law to protect order. Is that true? None of you ever watched Law and Order before? I'm not encouraging you to watch the show. I'm simply saying there's a connection, Amen. Law exists for the purpose of protecting order. We would be out of our minds to think that we are going to enter into an orderly place such as heaven and to think that there is no protector of that order. God wants to make us law-abiding citizens of his kingdom, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit and his spirit alone, beloved. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33 that God is actually able to take his law and write it, guess where? in our hearts. Do you know God doesn't want legalism from anybody in this room? God wants the religion of the heart. God wants us to serve him, not because he said so and he wrote it down in Ten Commandments. He wants us to serve him because we love him. Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Everything about the law, there's nothing legalist about that. Beloved, the law was founded in love. The law can be obeyed only by love. We talk about righteousness by faith, but do we understand that the faith of Jesus worketh by love? If we don't love Jesus, think about it. The, the, the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Could you possibly pull me to the side and tell me that the reason I don't cheat on my beloved wife is because I'm a legalist? 
can't you see that I would never do that by the grace of God to my wife? Not because I'm a legalist, but because I do what? I love her. Everything that has to do with the law of God must be founded upon love. The moment we get into that thought process where we think we're doing something to merit anything from God, we have, in fact, become legalists. And I promise you, beloved, not a single legalist will enter into heaven that way. God desires the religion of the heart. Is it your desire to give Jesus your heart this evening? Some of you are saying, but the Paul, I've already done that. Well, well, that's good. Let's do it again. Amen? There's nothing wrong with giving Jesus our heart this evening. I want Jesus to have my heart even right now. And I pray that is your desire as well. Now, I have a question for you. If God writes the law in our hearts, does the law plus man equal everlasting life? No. Can we work our ways to heaven, beloved? No. Absolutely not. So then God has to do something else, doesn't he? He has to do something to secure the fact that righteousness is in us. And that something else goes by the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, chapter 40, verses 7 through 8, speaking of Christ, let's go there. Psalms chapter 40, I want you to see this. We're in our last five minutes, beloved. I need you to grasp everything that you can. So while we've been walking up until this point, I'm going to be very honest, we're about to take a brisk jog. Is that all right? Did you come with your exercise shoes? Are you ready to jog a little bit? I'm going to need you to turn through your Bibles and follow with me. In the book of Psalms, in the book of Psalms, beloved, chapter 40, in the book of Psalms, chapter 40, we're going to read something very special about Jesus. We came to the conclusion that God desires the religion of the heart. He wants to put his law in our hearts so that when we are obedient, it is not because we're legalists, but because we love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. But now we're going to see that God had to do something very special with Jesus in order to make this a reality for you and I. In the book of Psalm chapter 40, beginning at verse 8, the Bible says, well, let's begin at verse 7. Speaking of Christ, the Bible says, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law, thy what? Thy law is where? Within my heart. Now follow this. The Bible says concerning Christ that Christ delighted to do the will of the Father because the law of the Father was written where? In his heart. Now how is that good news for you and I? Do you remember earlier in this message I told you from the Bible in Hebrews chapter uh, 7 and verse 26 that such an high priest became, guess who? Us. So then when we call him Emmanuel, God with us, anything that the Father does unto Christ, guess who he has done it unto? Us. So then if the law was written in the heart of Christ, and we receive the man Christ Jesus, then guess where that law is written tonight? In our hearts. Now I don't want you leaving here continuing as you were, and say that Paul said that the law is written in my heart, so I'm all right. No, beloved, there will be fruit. There will be evidence. If you are a mango tree, there will be what? If you're an apple tree, there will be? And if you're an avocado tree, I personally don't like avocados. I, I used to, but I'm actually allergic. Forgive me. <laughs> By their fruit, ye shall know them. And if Christ is in the heart, and the law is in the heart of Christ then God is able to make us law-abiding citizens of his kingdom. Beloved, we can go home. 
Don't you see this? This is wonderful news. Look at Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter in all of the Bible. Uh, it should be the easiest page in the Bible to turn to since it's the very end. Amen? Revelation chapter 22, beginning at verse 14, the Bible says, cursed. Talk to me, beloved. What does the Bible say? Blessed, not cursed, but blessed. Amen? There's a difference. The Bible says, blessed are they that what? Do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. The Bible says that though we are sinners today, there is no way that we can have a right to the tree of life. There is no way that we can enter into the city in that condition. But the good news of the gospel is that God did something for us in Christ that ensures that as we receive the blessed Jesus, we may enter in at those pearly gates. Beloved, do you want to go home? Some of them look like they want to get in their car and go home. I'm asking, do you want to go home with Jesus, beloved? That is the desire of my heart. Sister Ashley and I spend so much time talking about what it's going to be like to sit down under the tree of life with Christ. Think about that. The Bible says that the, the fruit from the tree of life, they're renewed all the time. Can you imagine walking into heaven, taking a piece of that fruit? Do you know that in heaven nothing dies? You could take that fruit and put it in your, in your room, by the grace of God, on a golden shelf. And the same fruit that you bit into 1,000 years ago, when you come back 1,000 years later, it never browned? Some of you talk about you love mangoes. Let me tell you something, beloved. Jesus has fruit that we have never tasted of. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I am here to let you know, in fact, that the Lord is good. Can you imagine walking through the garden and, and picking flowers? Sister Ashley, I'll pick you some flowers by the grace of God. And as I hand them to you, the same flowers that I gave you will never die. Beloved, there is a better country for us tonight. There is a higher experience. There is a higher place. And the burden of my heart as I stand here at this pulpit, I have to let you know, is that every single one of my family members in here, under the sound of my voice, receive the man, Christ Jesus. When we understand the plan of redemption, the plan reveals to you the beauty of the man. Now, I know it might sound strange to some of you that I'm up here talking about how Jesus is attractive, but Jesus is attractive. He's the most attractive man there's ever been. He says, I, if I should be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Beloved, I want the world to know this gospel. I don't know all your family members, but I know Jesus purchased them and he loves them and he died for them and he wants them to know this gospel. Is it your desire not only to receive what the Lamb of God has done, but to share it with others? Some of us may be afraid to share. Beloved, let me tell you something. The courage that we need comes to us in the very moment that we need it. Love never fails. Can we trust the Lamb of God? Can we leave our sins at the foot of the cross? Is Jesus strong enough to pick them up and to remove them? Somebody sang to me and told me, burdens are lifted at Calvary. Leave them there, beloved. Leave them there.